Good evening. We are um, still in our series on the parables of Jesus, and last week we began a new section in that series called the parables of grace. We did spend about six weeks on the parables of the kingdom. Those are all found in Matthew chapter 13, and now we're moving into a new phase of Jesus' ministry where he's starting to teach about how to enter into that kingdom, and the way you enter into that kingdom is through grace and grace alone. And so last week, we covered a very unique, interesting, odd, even, dare I say, weird parable that Jesus tells about pulling a coin out of a fish's mouth. It's almost like a magic trick. Jesus doesn't pull a rabbit out of a hat. He pulls a coin out of a fish. And we talked about that last week. And we concluded that Jesus was saying that the children are free from the religious temple taxes and thus free from the old religious order, and that the way we are entering into this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, is through grace, is through God's grace and Christ alone, not by a religious old archaic order of taxes and checklists of do's and don'ts. And so today as we look at this parable, I want to highlight, this is, I'm glad you're here tonight, because I'm going to highlight five extremely important things that you're going to get sick of hearing, I hope, um, in the next 12 weeks or so. And so here's the thing. Jesus tells his disciples, in my kingdom, in, the, in order to become a citizen of my kingdom, you'll be free, but in order to get there, you get there by grace. And so the question becomes, how do we enter into this kingdom? And Jesus' program for entering into the kingdom looks like this. It's a catalog of five things. And you're going to see this over and over and over again in all these parables of grace. Jesus says, here's who gets into my kingdom. Those who are last, those who are least, those who are little, those who are lost, and those who are dead. In fact, though that category, though that, that list of th- five things is so important, you would be wise to just memorize it. Um, last, least, little, lost, dead. Last, least, little, lost, dead. Those things that are little, those things that are least, those things that are the lastest are the ones who are getting into the kingdom. Those things who have come to the end of the rope where they're just basically dead, dead to self, dead to the world, dead to rights, Those are the ones who are entering into the kingdom, which means that the opposite of those things are not entering into the kingdom. Those who are great, those who are big, those who are think they're not lost, but think they have it all figured out. Those who are living in their own self-effort and say, look at me, I've got a full life on my own. Those are not entering into the kingdom. Right now, just pause for a minute. Think about some of the things that Jesus has said. You can probably recognize this, right? How often does Jesus say things like, last shall be first? If you want to be the greatest, you must become the least. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus opens up by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are persecuted, for you shall inherit the kingdom of God. So it's the little, the least of these, not the greatest of these. And so I want you to watch as Jesus outlines this tonight. So we're going to talk about the parable of the lost sheep But before we do, I have a lot of context I just want to rip through real quick. So last week was the temple tax. We're pulling the coin out of the fish's mouth. This week is the lost sheep. And in your Bible, between those two parables is context. Um, Jesus is teaching some things. Jesus is experiencing some things. And I just want to go through that context real fast and highlight those five things. Last, least, little, lost, and dead. Look at me, if you will. The next thing that happens is there's an argument, ironically, amongst the disciples about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> so this is kind of where it all starts. 
Matthew 18 says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in this kingdom you've been talking about? And calling to himself a child, think about this, Jesus is sitting there talking to his disciples, he pulls a child on his lap, and he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So automatically, you see that Jesus has just turned their idea of what greatness looks like upside down by saying, oh, you want to know how to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Let me grab a kid, put him on my lap, and say this. This is who's great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you need to understand that in Jesus' day, kids weren't that important, really. As a matter of fact, not in the not-so-distant past, kids weren't that important. They were meant to be seen, not heard, um, right? Not until they're old enough to speak. Must they, sometimes I wonder if we should go back to those kinds of you know, systems, amen, someone say hallelujah. It's, it's really only become recently that we started idolizing our children, you know, when we lived in this cultural context of suburbia where everything is about kids and their soccer and their t-ball and whether or not they're actually wearing shoes that are going to cause them to become more athletic or less athletic or whether or not they need ADHD medicine. You know, I mean, this is the world we live in now. We idolize our children. But back in that day, children were just cast aside. They were the least. They were the little ones. They, were, they weren't ready to input into society until they've learned a few things and they've grown up and then we'll listen to you speak. So Jesus puts that kid on his lap and say, this is how you become the greatest, by becoming like a child, least, little, insignificant. In fact, Mark has Jesus saying the same thing, but just a little differently. And I want to highlight what he says there. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And then he took a child and said the th same thing. You must become like one of these little ones to be like me. So here's Jesus sitting with a child on his lap saying, you want to know how to become the greatest? This is how you become the greatest. And then in the midst of that, John answered, I think this is weird, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. And Jesus says, but do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. And I started thinking about this. If I were Jesus, I would have been like, what in tarnations does that got to do with this little kid? You know, I've got a kid on my lap right now. I'm talking to you. I'm teaching you things about last least little lost dead. And you want to bring up this exorcist over yonder? What is that about? But what I get the sense that the Holy Spirit put this in this context for a reason, and I think that reason is to say, here it is again, the disciples missing the point entirely. Jesus saying, it's not about who's the winner or who's authorized or who's in the club. You're still worried about this guy because you think he's not a part of our club. And you think your club is the winning club. You think that you have to be a part of the 12. And if you're the 12, then you're authorized. And this guy's unauthorized. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. Leave him alone, okay? You're not special. There's a lot of people out there doing this stuff in my name. And there will be more. Don't think you're special. Don't get into the trap of thinking you're on the winning team. Because what I'm trying to tell you is that you're on the losing team. Isn't that interesting? Well, moving right along, Jesus goes back to talking about the kid as if that was uh, an interruption. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, Jesus says. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and I want you to know that in the Greek it doesn't say to sin. 
it actually says, whoever scandalizes one of these little ones. I don't know what translation you have. It might, he might have causes to stumble or whoever offends one of these little ones. But it doesn't actually say to sin. It says scandalize in the Greek, scandalon. Um, so whoever, whoever scandalizes one of these little ones would be better for him to have a great millstone wrapped around his neck and to be thrown into the depths of the sea. <laughs> wow, scary, isn't that? <laughs> Because if, if that's true, if it's whoever causes a little kid to sin, it's better for him to be thrown into the seat. We're all in trouble, aren't we? Because the other day, I got mad and kicked something and said something I shouldn't have said, and then Josiah walked over there and kicked it and said the same thing, right? Oh, no, millstone. <laughs> I feel the weight of it already. Actually, Jesus is saying, whoever causes one of them to stumble. Scandalon, the Greek word is to cause someone to stumble, which could mean to give up on his faith to give an offense to this person, or to throw difficulties in someone's way. We could also call it a trap. For those of you who are scholars, you know that this is the same word Christ used for himself. He's a trap that makes men stumble and a rock that makes men fall. He's a scandal on. So Jesus is saying, don't cause one of these little ones to fall. Here's how I take this to mean. It means don't cause one of these little ones to fall from grace and instead try to be on the winning team. Remember, they need to be on the losing team. Don't trick them into thinking they have to win. Keep them in line of knowing that they're a part of this program of last, least, little, lost, and dead. As soon as you start teaching them, you got to try harder, you got to do better, you got to be clean, you got to be tight, you got to be big, you got to be you know, the greatest. You've just ruined them. Think about that for a second. If that's really what this means, and I think that it does, in this context, why else would it be here? Then how have we done that? It's been done to us. Am I right? Someone say amen. I feel like I'm trapped in a world in which even though I preach this kind of stuff on Saturday, on Monday I'm trying to be a winner. Actually, I'm trying to be a winner right now. We live in a world where we, we would never not be a winner. We wouldn't seek to be a loser, baby, so why don't you? So then Jesus goes on and on. He says, if you cause this children to, if you tempt them to run away with this desire to be a winner, then it'd be better for you to die because you're no good for me, Jesus says. And then he, he does this weird thing about temptation. It's really scary, actually. He says, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, again, it's not sin, the King James Bible says, offendeth thee. Um, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter into life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the fire. And he says the same thing about eyes. If your eyes cause you to stumble or to be, if it offends you, pluck it out. Better for you to go to heaven or better you to, to live now with one eye than to go to hell with two. And if I can be so bold as to stretch this in a way you've never heard before, I will. What if Jesus is saying this, if being a winner with success-oriented equipment causes you to forget that I work through losers only, then cut that equipment off. It's better for you to enter into life lame, or in other words, to live as a loser in this age, than to end up having the whole unredeemed successes thrown into the fire of, these, of the age to come. Listen, I know this is strange and different than you've ever heard before, and it is different for me too, but in the context, I think that it fits. In other words, if your hand causes you to sin, let's just go with that way. Let's go with the way we normally read it. 
then cut it off. Why is it that I don't see a lot of one-handed guys running around? You know what I mean? Because we expected Jesus is speaking hyperbolically, and he doesn't really mean it. He just means that we should take sin seriously. <clears throat> but I think that Jesus is taking his program of last, least, lost, little, dead very seriously. And he's saying, if you think that with these hands, you can save the world with your own two hands, then maybe you would be better off not having these hands and being a loser in this world so that you would depend on Christ and grace alone. Same thing with your eyes, same thing with your feet, whatever it is. Now, I know that's a stretch, and I will admit that it is. And I'll also say this. I think you should be concerned about sin in your life. And if there is sin in your life, you should take it as seriously as cutting off whatever it is. If there's an addiction, if there's a problem, if there's an anger issue, that should be something that you want to purge from your life. But at the same time, I think that in context, Jesus is clearly speaking about this program of being like a little one. And why else would he put this in here with this kid sitting on his lap? I'm wondering this. And I think it's because he's telling us, listen, my program is I want you to be a loser. And as soon as you think you're a winner, something needs to be purged in your life. Think about it that way. Which will lead us to the parable of the lost sheep. So listen to what he says before he opens up that parable. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So you see, he's now going back. He talked about cutting off your, your hand, and then he goes back to the little one. Do not despise a little one. Let me translate it like this. Do not despise what it means to be little. Do not despise what it means to be least or last or lost or dead. Don't despise that. That is the thing that will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven, which I have no idea what that means. <laughs> the little guys have an angel. Their angels are in heaven always looking at my Father's face. Jesus seems to have a special place in his heart for those who are the least of these, doesn't he? Someone say Amen. Those who are the least of these, the least of these, he's always teaching us. And Jesus says, don't despise the least, the little, because in heaven, there's angels watching over them. So before I bust into the parable, have you already noticed that within just a couple contexts, we've already ticked off three of these things really in a big way, right? He's hammering home the least. He's hammering home the little. And he said, if you want to become first, you must be last. If you want to become great, you must become a servant of all. Last, least, little is already there. Now, I don't know if you're reading a Bible right now, if you're looking at your Bible. Raise your hand if you are looking at your Bible, because those of you who are being really good. See, you're good, and you're good. Who's got the ESV? Who's looking at the ESV? You? Okay. Do you notice that your Bible says, verse 10, then it says blah, 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 and then it says verse 12, mm -hmm. and it skips verse 11 entirely. Yep, does yours do that too? Yeah, yeah isn't that weird? Now, chances are there's a footnote, to be fair, and the footnote would tell you some early manuscripts have verse 11, which I don't know why they felt like they needed to cut it, but they did, because it's not that bad. Here's what it says in verse 11, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. It doesn't matter if it's not in there or not, because we all know that Jesus says this quite often. <laughs> it's okay. It's a good thing to say. But I like it here because it flows with what I'm trying to say about the last, least, little, lost. Jesus is flat out saying the Son of Man came to save the lost. And so if I can be so bold, now we've got four. <laughs> four in our category. And of course, it would make sense. I wouldn't have to have verse 11 because the next parable is about a lost sheep. And so we're okay, right? Let's talk about the lost sheep. 
before I do, I want to I share with you, with you what I, where I want to go in the next 12 weeks. As I've been studying this and reading it, I've been extremely convicted about the fact that I am an American through and through, which means I am adverse to being a loser. I'm averse to being last. I'm averse to being little in more ways than one. And, and, and I don't live my life with a, a paradigm or a, a mission to be the least and to be last and to be little. And in fact, I live instinctively the opposite. It, it really fleshes out in my driving. You know, if someone gets in front of me, no. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't care if you're going faster than me. I'm in front. I mean, I really do drive that way. I could be doing 35 with someone in front of me, and it drives me crazy. But if no one's in front of me, 35 is fine. It's okay. You know? But if someone's in front of me, it's not fast. Is anyone else like that? Am I the only one? See, I'm really in trouble. So here's what I want to do over the next 12 weeks. I'd like to explore together through these parables of grace how we might fully embrace our littleness. How might we grow into the kinds of Christians who literally embrace being last, least, little, dead, and losers. Sometimes, as I'm studying this stuff, and it becomes convicting to me, I'll leave home and get in my car, and I'll try to practice it, you know, because it'll be on my mind. Okay, look, now I'm going to be least. You know, it happened to me today, because I was preparing for the sermon. Late night last night, I'm sure we all had one. I need Starbucks, so I get coffee on the way here, and the line is a mile and a half long, and, and you know what I start to immediately think? That guy ordered four Frappuccinos, jerk. If you order four Frappuccinos, you should get out of your car and go in and get it. Don't stand in line and get it. You know what I mean? And I'm watching all these cars just go so slow. And I told Josiah, you wait. When I get up there, boom, I'm going to get my car to go. Boom, I'm going to leave. It'll be two seconds. You watch. I pulled up there. Boom, 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 boom. Shoom, I'm out the door. I'm the winner. See that? When I do it, I do it right. Everyone else, they're slow and obnoxious and uh, in my way. See what I'm saying? Even though I was trying to be last, in my mind I was thinking, yeah, I, I can, you know, I can just be very patient here. It's okay, go ahead, you know. But in the end, I ended up saying, look at me. And I exhibited it to my son. Look at me, your dad, the winner. Do you Watch how whenever I pull up, I'll flip my credit card over there. It literally took me two seconds. I just want you to know, when I went through there, it took me two seconds. <laughs> I'm a winner. Do you, do you think that we do horribly at this? I mean, Jesus said it over and over and over and over and over and over again that you must become the servant of all, the least, the last. You must die to yourself and let others kill you. And if someone punches you in the face, give them your other side. And everything inside of us goes the opposite direction. And, 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 and I'll be honest with you, maybe we need to preach more about that. Instead of saying, you need to try harder, you need to do better, and you need to be gooder, what we should be saying is you need to try harder and do better and be gooder about being least and last and little, because that's not what I've, I've not made that a priority in my life, I'm just going to be honest with you. So here's my discussion question. Um, in what ways do, do we, and I'm trying to be very, um, I want to stomp on some toes, to be honest with you. In what ways do we postmodern, evangelical, Generation X, or millennials, Christians, need to change in regard to being least, last, little, and lost? Because I have a theory that most of us are just plain selfish. All generations, whether you're X or Y or Mosaic or Millennials, I mean, it doesn't matter. Read the books. We're all selfish. <laughs> We're all selfish. And when it comes to church, and I've worked in a lot of churches, so I think I can comfortably say that 
most of the church is selfish. Who would disagree with me? Yeah, no one. So I want you to discuss at your tables for a couple minutes. So let's look at the parable then. Um, Jesus says, so what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost or goes astray, again, he stumbles or gets scandalized, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, he rejoices over it more than all the other 99 that never went astray, the good guys. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, again, he's back to the little thing, stupid little sheep, a little one that's maybe still sitting on his lap, should perish. <clears throat> I want you to know I, I preached a sermon um, on these parables about a year and a half ago, which I like that sermon better than this one. This is called Jesus Loves Sinners, and in that one I take the Luke um, account, Lucan account, where Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep, and then he tells the parable of the lost coin, which is the same exact parable, but it's about a coin, and then he tells the parable of the lost son, or aka the prodigal son, and in that context, he's telling those three parables because the Pharisees are standing outside of the door looking in on Jesus, who's sitting in someone's, a tax collector's house, eating dinner with losers. Tax collectors, prostitutes, and Luke says sinners, whatever that means. Country music singers, perhaps. And, <clears throat> and Jesus, in response to those so-called winners, tells these three parables, which says, I'm, in, I'm after the losers, I'm after the sheep, I'm after the lost, I'm after the little. Even the son who goes astray, I'm after him, not the son who stays. We'll talk about that parable later. I like that sermon better, so if you want to listen to it, that would be fun. Um, this one, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching this more to myself because I'm loving it. So let's just, you already know what this parable means because I've already basically exegeted it, right? Least, last, little, lost, dead. There it is. A sheep who's lost is as good as dead, isn't he? He's out there. Here's something interesting Jesus says. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say this in a sermon. Jesus says, which one of you who lost one sheep would not leave the 99 on the hillside or in Luke on the hill, on, in, in the field to go and find the one? Let's just be honest. No one would say, yeah, you wouldn't do that, right? You wouldn't leave 99 on the hillside to go find the one because all you're going to end up with is 99 lost sheep and perhaps 100 lost sheep if you don't find the one that you went after, right? This is not very good math. Jesus is making a statement that you shouldn't say yes to. Which one of you? Well, none of us, obviously. <laughs> you don't just leave sheep in the field. What is, that? what is Jesus saying? I like this. Um, Robert Capon says, I think it's best to assume that Jesus is parabolically thumping the tub for the saving paradox of lostness. You guys know what thumping the tub means? I didn't know what that meant either, so I had to look it up in the, in the internet. Wikipedia says, to tub thump means to argue for or promote something vigorously. You usually hear it in response to politicians. They're thumping the tub. They, you know, say no to Amendment 3 or whatever it is. Um, for those of you who might know, the band called Chambawamba had a song entitled Tub Thumping. You know how it goes? I got knocked down, but I get up again. I got to sing my guitar, right? You're never going to keep me down, which I always thought he said something about tuning his guitar. I don't know why. <laughs> They're European. <laughs> I get knocked down. I get up again, and I'm going to do something with my guitar. That's what I always thought he said. But anyway, back to the, back to the quote. Um, Jesus is tub thumping. He's beating this horse dead. He's over and over and over again telling you that the paradox is about lostness. He implies, it seems to me that even if all 100 sheep should get lost, it will not be a problem for this bizarrely good shepherd. 
because he's the first and foremost in the business of finding the lost, not of making a messianic buck out of the unstrayed. So for him, he's like, what? If 99 are here, I will leave to get the one, and if I'm, while I'm gone, they get lost? Not a problem for me, because I'm in the business of saving the lost, which is why I think verse 11 should be there. Give him a world with a hundred out of every hundred souls lost. Give him, in other words, the world full of losers. That is the only real world we have, and it will do just fine. Lostness is exactly his cup of tea. Jesus is after lostness. He's not worried about whether or not you're lost. He can find you. We've already seen Lastly's little lost, and if I can stretch it a little bit, a lost sheep equals a dead sheep, right? If the sheep is lost, he's probably dead. Not necessarily, but probably the case. Jesus tells a parable about the lost coin. A lost coin is a dead asset. If you don't have that coin, you don't have an asset, it's dead. And if we could push it even further, when Jesus tells a parable of the lost son, that father says he once was lost, now he's found, he once was dead, now he's alive. And so if you will work with me, we have all five now, least, last, little, lost, and dead. That is who Jesus wants. That is who Jesus is after. I could end there, I think, and say something cute and then sing song. But I want to be honest with you because I feel like we're small enough. We can be honest with each other, right? I recognize that this sounds different than you probably ever heard before in your life because it sounds different to me when I studied it. Um, and I'm, I'm fully willing to say whatever it is you want to say on the other end. You know, it's about sin and about repentance and about cutting off your hand. And we can say all those things, and that's fine with me because I think those would, that would be a good sermon to preach anyway. Some of you do have sin, and we need to cut your hands off, you know. But, but let's just play with this for a little bit. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to answer some of the questions that are in your mind. So one of you might be thinking this. Uh, didn't Jesus say something about repentance in this parable about the sheep? Yeah, he did in, in Luke, but not in Matthew. In Matthew, he says, so it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So that parable seems to fit nicely with the whole little ones and the least. But to be honest with you, Luke has a different spin on it. Remember, he's talking to the Pharisees who are judging him for hanging out with losers. And so he says to them, so he turns to them after telling the parable, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 self-righteous persons who have no need for repentance. And he's talking to the Pharisees. But there's the sense there when he says, over a sinner who repents. And then to go even further, when Jesus tells the parable of the coin, he ends it the same way. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And what we could do, what I could do, what you've heard before, I know, is to preach repentance. Jesus would preach repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near, Jesus said. John the Baptist preached repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And what we mean by repentance is metanoia, which means to turn around or to change one's mind, to think differently. And to be honest with you, you should think differently about your sin. If you have a sin in your life, you should repent of that sin or think differently about it. It's not good for you to think that it's okay for you to get away with that. It's not, right? Of course God doesn't want you to be in sin. He loves you. You don't want your kids to be in sin, right? You love them. But what else could Jesus be talking about when he says to think differently? Sometimes we suggest that in order to be saved, you must repent. But can I remind you that the sheep and the coin, for that matter, can't repent? <laughs> All they can do is sit in their lostness. They're lost. And do they come to Jesus and say, I'm sorry for being lost? No, Jesus goes to them and saves them. They're the ones that have lost. 
So to put it another way, sometimes we make it seem and sound like in order to be saved, in order to be a part of the winning team, you have to first clean up, ship up, you know what I mean? Be sorry, at least, in the, in the least, for being led astray. And Jesus, I think, is saying, no, I'm in the business of saving the lost because the only thing the lost can do is recognize that they're lost. The sheep probably recognize, uh-oh, I'm lost. Or maybe he doesn't. I don't know what sheep think. But right? He can't say, I'm going to fix this. And the coin can't either, you know? That little woman's dusting the whole house, and the coin be like, hey, I'm over here. You know, but he can't do anything, right? Just waiting for the woman to find him. And the same thing is true with the son. If you follow that parable, which we'll cover later, he doesn't come to his father saying, I'm sorry for my sin. Can I come in now? He just says, I'm worthless. I'm dead. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm, I'm unworthy. I'm the least. I'll be a servant. <clears throat> and that's when God or his father says, that's what I'm looking for. Okay, so hence, if in our interpretations we harp on the necessity of a changed heart, if we badger ourselves with the dismal notion that sinners must first forsake their sins before God will forgive them, that the lost must somehow find itself before the finder will get up off his backside and look for it, we carry ourselves straight away from the obvious sense of both stories. I want you to hear what I'm saying. The Bible speaks of repentance. We need to repent. But in this story, it is about the good shepherd who chases after the lost, not if they repent, but just by the very fact that they're lost. Does that make sense? Just by the very fact that you see yourself as least, last, little, lost, and dead. Then, that's all that matters. You can't do anything, nothing, no works of your own. And when Jesus or the shepherd comes and gets that sheep, say that sheep is you, and puts him on his shoulders, do you not repent? Someone say yes. You do? Oh, yeah. I shouldn't have ran. Thank you so much for saving me. Not the other way around, but sometimes we... I don't know if we actually ever say it to tell you the truth, but sometimes it sounds that way. I think people think that. I have to fix myself before I can go to church. These parables of lostness are far from being exhortations to repent. They are emphatically not stories designed to convince us that if we will wind ourselves up to some acceptable level of moral or spiritual improvement, God will then forgive us. Rather, they are parables about God's determination to move before we do. Remember, the father ran to the son, not the other way around. In short, to make lostness and death the only tickets we need to the supper of the lamb. There is in them not one single note of earning or merit, not one breath about rewarding the rewardable, correcting the correctable, or improving the improvable. In fact, to take it the other way would be against Romans 5, which says, for one will barely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners unrepentant, lost, Christ died for us. And I want to hammer home this so you don't misconstrue what I'm saying. It is still true that you do need to change your mind in regard to your sin, okay? That's still true. I'm not saying go ahead and sin because Jesus is just going to find you. That's not what I'm saying. You need to change your mind about that sin, but you also need to change your mind about your ability to quit sinning. Because when you think, oh, how many, how many of you have done this before? You've gone to communion? And you said, Lord, I'm sorry for what I did an hour ago, <laughs> and I will never do it again. It, it, am I the only one who's ever said that? Okay, you've said it. Thank you. Thanks for being honest. Lord, from this moment on, I will never look at a woman lustfully with my eyes, said Job. And I've said that same thing. Can I be honest with you? I still have eyes. I should have plucked them both out by now, you know. <laughs> 
we often say, you know, I'm going to manhandle and white-knuckle this sin and I'm going to be done. But how many times have you failed at that? Or maybe you succeeded for a month or two, but then on a random Tuesday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it hits you and you fail. So you need to change your mind about your ability to quit. And instead, you need to get to a point where you're like, I'm lost. I'm so dead. I'm so little. I can't even think straight. I can't even do anything right. I'm stupid. Maybe you should think like that to some degree, which is opposite of American psychology, which says you're not stupid. You're good enough. You're smart enough. But, you know, I'm stupid. Then Jesus says, okay, now I got something I can work with. All right, come on. You're finally at the end of your rope. You're finally at a place where you can trust me and me alone. So what does that do to all these things we talk about in the church? Confession, repentance, absolution, right? You've been absolved from your sins. Well, the definition of confession is this, a formal statement admitting that one is guilty of a crime. I confess I have sinned, which is what I encourage you to do when you take communion tonight. Confess your sins. But confession isn't what I often think it is and perhaps what you think it is. Confession is instead this. It is not the admission of a mistake which, thank God and our better nature, we have finally recognized and corrected. Rather, it is the admission that we are dead in our sins and that we have no power of ourselves either to save ourselves or to convince anyone else that we are worth saving. Confession means I'm I'm dead. I can't. I'm stuck. I'm lost. You know what's interesting? My son, Josiah, he's pretty smart. We were on the road trip back and we were listening to Jesus Story Bible, which is phenomenal if you don't have it. And when we get home, he asks a question. He says, Dad, if Jesus died for all the sins of the world, why are there still so many sins in the world? Uh, because I should know this one, right? <laughs> because Jesus died for all the sins, even the sins you still have yet to do, is about what the Bible says. Oh, and he understood it and walked away and played Legos. And I don't quite know if I understand that quite, you know, quite yet, but it's true. Jesus died for all the sins, and yet we still sin. So we can't ever come to the place where we confess our sins and say, okay, good, I'm done, moving on to level two, right? Because <laughs> if you do move on to level two, you know what happens, right? Jesus just reminds you that you're impatient. Okay, now you're patient. You move to level four. Jesus reminds you that you're selfish. It just keeps going. You're never, you're never done. Or how about absolution? Um, absolution, by definition, the word means a formal release from guilt. Um, obligation or punishment and, or an ecclesiastical or churchy declaration of forgiveness of sin. You can think of the Pope saying, I absolve you of your sin, Mother, mother may I. <coughs> the Latin word is absolvier, I think, which means to loosen or to free or to dispose of or to complete or to finish. And so I need you to hear this. So when God pardons us, He does not say he understands our weakness or makes allowances for our errors. Rather, he disposes of or finishes with the whole of our dead life and raises us up with a new one. He does not so much deal with our derelictions as he does drop them down the black hole of Jesus' death. He forgets our sins in the darkness of the tomb. That's an awesome quote. Here's what I like about that quote. I love gospel preaching. I think Missio Day is a gospel preaching church. I want to preach the gospel, the good news. Jesus died for you so that you can have full life today, right? Jesus pays for your sin. It's good news, not bad news that you need to try harder, right? It's good news that he died for your sins. But on the other hand, sometimes what we tend to say is this, and I've said it. You've heard me say it, I'm sure. It doesn't matter whose bed your boot's been under. 
It doesn't matter where you've been or what back alley you came out of. It doesn't matter how you smell or what you drink or what you smoke. It doesn't matter, right? Jesus loves you. And that's a, that's a good message. But what we tend to imply by that is, despite your sinfulness, God will look, a, look away and he loves you. He loves you, but he kind of like washes off that sin, and then he loves you. Does that, does, that, does that make sense? We say things like, in spite of who you are, God still loves you. You should be thankful. But what if we didn't say that? And what if instead we said, because of who you are, God loves you? I believe that's true. I believe the Bible says that. Can I tell you this? I feel that way about my kids. I don't love Josiah despite of the fact that he is annoying, right? In fact, in some ways, I love his annoyingness, although I'm correcting him on it as much as I can because I don't want him to be that way forever, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I still love him, not despite his annoyingness. And this is being recorded, so he's going to listen to it when he's 16. But not, not despite the fact that he can be um, obnoxious, but because of it, because I love him, period. We sometimes make God to be, I only love you if I can clean you up first, then I love you. But I'm trying to tell you that Jesus is saying, I'm after the lost, to the least, to the little, the last, and the dead, which means he loves you where you are, who you are. That's liberating. I don't know if you know that or not. So let me conclude. As we approach the uh, communion table and the cup, I want you to know that you're that sheep. Oh, you and me, we're that sheep. We're lost. Never forget that. Because as soon as you think that you're not, is when you're putting yourself in the winning team instead of being a part of the losing team. You're the sheep. And you're so lost. And so Jesus is the one who finds you and me in the desert of death, not in the garden of improvement. He's not chasing down the, the, the sheep who's in the garden with all his self-help books, okay? He's chasing down the sheep who's just lost and running around aimlessly and about ready to pee his pants, right? That's who Jesus is chasing after. And then here's the good news. And when he finds you there in that desert of lostness, he puts us on his shoulders rejoicing, and he brings us home. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.